believers live in irony to the world's priority. So understanding irony, and irony actually comes from the Greek. Uh, the word, as we see, is eponea, and it's feigned ignorance, is the juxtaposition of what is on the surface um, may appear to be the case and what is actually the case or to be expected, put in different words. It's an important re um, rhetorical device and literary technique, and there's actually six types of of irony, and we're actually looking at this morning verbal irony. So verbal irony, as you see here, is a contradiction between statements stated and the intended meaning. And uh, it's, it's actually stating the contrary or less of what is actually meant. We use it without even realizing often. Uh, so examples. So if you were to say, if a, a mother were to look at their son's messy room and say, wow, this room could win an award for cleanliness. That's irony. Or on the way to work, you get a flat tire and you say, excellent, my day could not have started better. It's irony. Uh, your friend is very upset over the fact that their brand new car has a little speck of mud on the hood and maybe you're driving an old beat up car and they say, my goodness, um, and you, know, you say, my goodness, what a shame. Uh, how can you handle such a tragedy? You know, a small child lets out a loud belch at the table, and the mother says, boy, you have such good manners. They must come from your father. Um, we were on the ASU campus, uh, and um, it, it was, um, they're talking about safety. And I was thinking it was a little bit ironic because the irony was if, if, if you're in danger and you need help, um, you hit one of the call lights, the blue lights, and the vehicle that comes to help you is a, a white van. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're ever taught, you know, if a white van comes around, you don't go near that. You just stay away from those panel vans, right? Because that's the dangerous thing. So, but it's a little white van that comes and helps um, those in trouble. Make sure it says ASU on it. But, but just I thought that's a little ironic because even the individual who is telling us, yes, the white van. But as we arrive back at the text, you know, to give you some background and irony, the reason is, as, as we understand in chapter 4, it says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And as we look at this, as we see the, the understanding of arrogance, there's a spirit of arrogance, and even throughout, as we began the chapter, there was that contrast of wisdom and foolishness. And understanding the knowledge, and those the Corinthians were seeking after knowledge, and thinking, who knows more? What is more important to gain that wisdom and knowledge? And so, as we see in verses six or seven, Paul expresses the error, the pride that the Corinthians believers possess as a result of the teachings. So it doesn't matter whose teaching it was; they were taking pride in it, because at the beginning we see, I follow after Paul because he's the apostle, he's smart. Well, I follow after. Apollos because he's a better speaker. So they were using that almost as a competition and understanding who you follow, which one's better. Um, the best illustration I could give kind of is like a sports team. Maybe you, have, you follow after a sports team. Well, this team is better or this team is better. Don't worry, we live in Arizona, so we have no one to follow that's really decent as a sports team. But maybe you are from a, a different um, city and, you know, you bring those loyalties with you, uh, certain teams. And uh, so 
Here, they were following after that, and words like puffed up boasting. It reminds us of the arrogance of the Corinthians' believers, and the problem is they weren't exhibiting that humility. And so Paul, we'll see later, Paul kind of uses some of that language and that irony to kind of, uh, quote-unquote, subtly, it's not really subtle, it's kind of in your face, build them up with irony and uh, tell them how they're wrong. And uh, so as we see here, they were taking that knowledge and wisdom from others. And Paul reminds them that what they have, they didn't get on their own. They gained it from others. If you see in verse 7, it says, For who makes, you, who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So they're always trying to identify. And I see the application in today's world because it's always about grabbing attention. You're either, oh, I'm, I'm the victim or, or I'm this. And people jump to conclusions without the proper information. And it's dangerous. But here, it's, they're talking about the wisdom. Oh, this wisdom, how learned I am or, or I got this knowledge. We're always, if we actually think about it, we always like to have knowledge. Whether we realize it or not. I mean, if you ever... You know, sometimes hearing about in the news, you're the first day, hey, did you hear about the tragedy that happened? No, I didn't. Tell me about it. And so we, we want to share it with others because it's breaking news or it's something new, whether it be technology, whether it be in vehicles or sports. Um, I was speaking with someone the other night, and they're telling me about their importing electric vehicles uh, from Vietnam, you know, different, and it might re- lower the prices or different things. But it's just interesting facts that we hear, and so we want to share them. But Paul tells them, that, guess what? It's not about the knowledge. You need to be careful. When it comes to this spiritual knowledge about Christ and you're acting arrogant, you don't have a spirit of humility. This knowledge, it's dividing you. And uh, Isaac Newton once said, If I had seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Thinking about what we have and what we've gained, it's because simply those who have gone before have provided us with a basis, a knowledge basis and learning. And there's another one that says, Simon Donovan also said, We all stand on the shoulders of someone who came before us, someone who laid a foundation, set an example, taught us, mentored us, led us, and loved us. All that we achieve or have or gain in life is not based upon our own merit or work. And that's what sometimes even these Corinthians, they were priding themselves on. That, hey, look what I got. I achieved this. Well, I'm smarter than you. And so they were causing divisions. There was dividing based upon their own um, desires to be first. Well, as we get to verse 8, here Paul starts to express some of that. He says, you are already full. Now he's not talking about, oh, guess what? Did you have lunch? You're already full. Oh, I can't eat anymore. No, but... If you think about that being satiated, guess what? That knowledge, you already have that. You have all that you need in Christ through the possession of the gospel. You are already rich. You know, that's the eternal struggle people have. You know, what is enough to live by? It used to be, oh, I wish I was a millionaire. I wish I was a billionaire. Win the lottery and then I'd be, I'd be satisfied and have everything I need. You know, that never happens. It seems like the goal keeps moving. We always are never satisfied. Contentment. And here Paul expresses it to these believers and says, guess what? Understand in Christ what you have. You have the gospel. You have all you need for life and godliness, Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us. And discontentment causes people to want more and they forget what they already possess. Think about it as a child. Believe it or not, each of you were children. You know, and maybe you had a toy, you know, and you, you love that toy, you played with it, and then someone else got a, a better toy. It's like, this toy is junk. 
come on, why, I want what they have. That's much better. That's newer. Maybe that's a, this is the off-brand Barbie doll. You know, this is the real Barbie doll. Or this is a truck. That, you know, this isn't a matchbox. This is a piece of junk vehicle. The wheels don't even roll. Whatever toy you had at a, at a younger age, you know, game systems, you know. Uh, but what happens is, is that we aren't content. And Paul tells them, says, what you have, you forget what you already have, what you possess. You have reigned as kings without us. Literally, you've enjoyed liberty, autonomy, if you will, to, to have those decisions. Whereas um, the picture there is of watching in the Colosseum. Think of the Roman Colosseum. You know, you have that. You have the freedom to go and uh, enjoy entertainment. You are watching down. You are as those in the seats looking down. But verse 9, it says, um, you are made a spectacle to the world. Or excuse me, we are, it says in verse 9, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world. That is, like, if you think about it, being in the gladiator realm. I know that the closest thing we have is the octagon, I guess, with MMA and all that stuff, but ultimate fighting. But it's kind of like the Romans because they had animals. They were put there to lions or cruelly beaten to the death. And so it's like it made a spectacle to the world, condemned to death as criminals or gladiators. Paul understood that his role and the apostles were to simply, they probably... They all died a martyr's death except for the Apostle John. But they knew that their life was about taking the gospel to the rest of the world, to sharing it with others. They understood what their priority was. And he says, as we begin our um, looking at uh, the express points here, in verses 10 to 11, we see believers' perceptions of status are countercultural. So as we think about Living in irony to the world's priorities, believers' perceptions of status are countercultural. The hard part is that we sometimes we don't care about status symbols, but you know, as believers, we still want people to like us. If you're to go out and everyone hates us, you know, it would be like a difficult world to live in. You know, if if you go out everywhere, you know, go to the grocery store and people insult you. If you go to your work and hey, how you doing, ugly? You know, it's like, okay, you know, usually that's how guys work. That's the difference between, you know, men and women. W guys can go out and they give, like, all these dumb nicknames, you know. How you doing? And, uh, but it's just different. But the whole point is, if you were to go to work, if you go everywhere and they insult you, they, they really are, are mean to you, you'd be like, I don't want to get out of bed. It's like, uh, this, this would be very difficult to live in today's world. The challenge is it's getting to that point. If you're a Christian, people know about it, you're going to be confronted with insulting and, and, and think that you're strange. But for the believer, it's important for us to understand, as we see in verse 10 to 11, allow me to read it again. Verse 10 and 11, it states and sa it says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you are strong, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Boy, I'll tell you, it doesn't sound too positive there. And in verse 10 where it says, we are fools for Christ's sake. In the Greek, the word is, is actually translated or transliterated, it's morose. You understand that? If we don't use that term, like um, if you've heard someone say, you're a moron. So in some countries, there are insults that are worse, but to be morose or moron. 
but in the world's viewpoint, believers. It says you are wise in Christ. Hold your spot and go back to chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. If you remember mentioning Paul expressly talking about, and we'll start in verse 25 because it says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then in verse 26 it says, for you see your calling, brethren, and that calling in Christ, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, there's that status and position, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Understanding here, you see that contrast is striking. The parallel of biblical Christianity versus one who is just simply a social Christian. And what I mean by a social Christian is they're those who say that they're a Christian, they believe in God, they might go to church, but they haven't experienced a transformed life. They don't have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for everyday living. And that's an important part because if you think about the relationship, it's one thing to know someone. Like if I were to say, oh yeah, I know um, LeBron James or I know, um, uh, let's see, the basketball players, I could say... um, I need Simon here to name one of the different uh, players, um, like Donkic or who's ever playing um, um, joke, um, Joker there for, uh, uh, for Denver. Or if you could say, I know um, Bill Gates. You could say, oh, yeah, I, I know them. But for the most part, I don't know them. I could recognize them, but I don't know them personally. I don't know anything about them. But there's some people who you know personally. They say, oh, yes, I know so-and-so. Maybe it's a husband and wife, a good friend. You know about them, where they went to school. You know what they like, personal, personally. And so that's where our personal relationship with Christ is different because there are some people who you know that care about you. It's the same way in our personal relationship with Christ. It's, it's a balance because we place our faith in him, our eternal life. And we believe that he will fulfill the promise that he's given. He's going to help us to learn more about who he is. He's going to help us to understand the word. And someday, if it should be that this were our last day on earth, we would be with him in heaven. But we also understand there's a purpose that he has in our, um, with us personally to direct our life and path. Well, as we return and understand the present culture, when people who are not in a close personal relation with Christ, who are, quote, unquote, a social Christian, they go to church, they, they have a, a, a brand, if you will, of Christianity, but they're not really following and living for Jesus. And so the challenge is because there's a contrast with being a, a biblical Christian because it's hard. Sometimes you're not going to be liked. Sometimes you have to stand up for what is right. As you read the Bible, it tells you, okay, you know, follow after me. Take up your cross daily. Does that mean I have to get a wooden thing and drag it around? But what it means is we go through trials and temptations. We go to difficulties. We respond differently than the world. And here's the perception of our status. It says, guess what? You're going to face difficulties. You're going to, there are going to be times when people don't like you. And we're like, well, I like to be liked. I don't want to be in that situation. But who do you want to be liked by? By Christ or by the world? By those in society? And that's the hard um, contrast. Because those in the world think that they know everything. 
You know, follow this pattern. If you look at all the different social media things, hey, you want to be popular, you want to do this, it's different. But sometimes they have it wrong. And that's what is trying to be expressed in the text that the foolishness of God, if, and that's irony, if God could be foolish, which he isn't, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If God could be weak, then his weakness would still be much stronger than anyone's strength. And uh, using that illustration. But let me give you an illustration. How many have heard of Mensa? Mensa. Okay, Gene is a member of Mensa, I guess. So. And so, Andrew, huh? So, um, Mensa is a, a group. Um, there's, there was a group meeting in San Francisco. And Mensa is a national organization of those who have an IQ of 140 or higher. Well, several of the Mensa members went out for lunch at a local cafe. They sat down and then discovered that their salt shaker contained pepper, and their pepper shaker was full of salt. So how could they swap the contents of the two bottles without spilling any and using only the implements on hand? So they thought, this is a job for the Mensa minds. So they sat there and debated. They thought about the problem, presented ideas. You know, they, and finally, they came up with a brilliant solution involving a napkin, a straw, and an empty saucer. And using, only the, using those, they called the waitress over. They wanted to dazzle her with what they had come up with. And so they said, ma'am, we couldn't help but notice that the pepper shaker contains the salt, and the salt contains the pepper. And so, be, but before they could finish giving their dazzling explanation, the waitress interrupted and said, oh, sorry about that. So she leaned over the table, unscrewed the caps, of the both bottles and then switched them. They both sat there like all the other men at the table were like dead silence. So sometimes the easy solutions. You don't have to be the brightest in the room to, to solve the problem, but sometimes they think they are. So that's where the status is countercultural. See, as you see in the text in verse 10, Paul says, we are weak, you are strong. Now he wasn't saying that literally, figuratively, as we about the irony of there, you're thinking that you are strong because you have this knowledge. You know, you are distinguished in this position of status, but we are dishonored. And even as we look at verses 11 to 13, there are 10 verbs that emphasize the contrast of priorities of social status and position with the emphasis upon the spiritual work the apostles were given, or Christ's servants. Verse 11 says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed represents a lack of respect, viewed poorly, um, and looked down upon. I mean, think about your house. If you live with someone else, a husband, wife, you know, you'd be like, you're not going out in that shirt or that clothing. You know, sometimes as, as guys get older, they just wear anything. You wonder, oh, that is not good, you know. You know, hey, I've had this for 14 years. You know, it fits fine. You know, that's fine. You know, there's a hole where the wallet used to be or, you know, that's just how guys are, you know. And then you save the new clothes because these old ones haven't worn out. Very different mentality. I'm giving you the insight, ladies. But, you know, poorly clothed, it represents a lack of respect. And, you know, people are going to look at you. And I'm with you, so don't, you know, don't wear that if we go out. You know, hunger and thirst. We are beaten. Literally, as it says in the Greek, roughly treated. It's symptomatic of those who lack respect. And I'll be honest, in today's society, there's not much respect. People are getting into arguments and fights over the basic things. And uh, there's no respect for law. There's no respect for um, anything. And that's a dangerous because as society, um, as we continue on, what kind of world we live in. But when there isn't a center, when there isn't any absolute or belief in God, that's what happens. It says we are homeless. 
Um, not literally, but it means of low social status. We're dealing with, in Scottsdale, in Arizona, homeless crisis, you know, the mental illness. And what do we do? You know, fix it. There is no quick solution, but um, it is, you know, those who don't have any resources. But it is, you know, the homeless talking about that. And so that's a, a challenging dilemma, and Paul is presenting that's how we are viewed, of low social status. And he's not complaining. There's some people who are like, oh, you know, you know, I can't believe I don't have this, I don't have that. He's not complaining. Remember, he's using this as a contrast to the Corinthian believers who are saying, look, you have this, this is where we are. But, um, and we'll explain why. But this is in contrast to the world and to, it is countercultural. Because you believe that this, in order to have a good status, in order to be, have everything in life, you, you think you have this, knowledge, wisdom, and that gains you prestige, position. But we are followers of Christ, the apostles, and guess what? This is where we're at. Is it because we're less? Because God has looked down upon us? People are going to tell you because you're Christian, there's some who uh, in erroneously promote the saying, oh, come to Christ and you'll have everything. God will answer all your prayers. You're going to get rich. You'll have everything you want. But make sure you send that check and I'll send you that blessed hanky. No, that's not how it works. The Bible never explains that. You're not going to get all you want. In fact, the Bible says as a, if you come to Christ, if you follow him, you're going to have difficulties, hardships. But guess what? You'll also have purpose. You'll have fulfillment in knowing that God has you right where, you want, where he wants you, and you're going to have great joy, even in good times and bad times. It doesn't say it's all just, oh, dump on you. Sometimes the songs we sing, you know, they're, they're all like um, a, a, what I call a country song. You know, hardship. Face this hardship. You know, follow after me. Trust and obey. You know, you're going to have to go through hardship and you'll lose everything. You know, it's kind of like the country song. You play it backwards, you get your dog back, your truck back. You have all these other, other your hat back, your boots back. But, but sometimes we, we promote this mentality of follow after Christ and everything's hard. And um, there is no joy. And I think Christians forget that. You know, serve God, go to, the, go to this country, go here, and you have to give up everything. That's not necessarily what the Bible promotes. It says, whatever position you're in, there's some who are in a very well status. doesn't matter where you're called as a Christian. Some who are slaves, some who were um, those who were in charge of military, those who owned others. It doesn't matter whatever position you're in, it's important that you follow after Christ and use the resources that, that he has given you. Because within your sphere of influence, there are people that God is going to have that you will be able to impact for Christ. Some in good ways, as we think about our good, where, oh, you know what, you can be kind to them. But sometimes through the hardships that you go through, you can bless and encourage others. And so that, pro that perception of status, when you're hungry, when you're weak, you know, talking about that contrast, sometimes there is a struggle um, I'm sure some of the younger ones, you know, who are under 30 have never felt what it's like to be, go hungry for a long period of time. But I know that older generations, when they went through the depression, when others who are, who are struggling to make it, it, there were times where there was nothing. You know, they didn't have Uber Eats. You know, they didn't have, you know, send a meal a month or a, a, every week come to your house. Totally different, the food situations. It was a difficult time. And so here we talk, as Paul expresses that, guess what? You know, don't just be caught up in your own little bubble of what it means to have a perception of your status. And guess what? 
following after Christ, whatever status you're in, don't search for the, don't um, go after the world's perception of what it means to be successful. As a Christian, as a believer, what the Word of God says, you know, it's going to be countercultural against what popular culture says. And the second thing we look at is believers' actions are countercultural. As we see in verse 12 to 13, our actions are not to be like the world's. It says in verse 12, it says, And we labor, working with our own hands. And, and obviously Paul was a tent maker, but if you remember the Greek and Roman culture, to work with your hands is kind of like seen as low class. Um, let me just give you an example. Imagine you are in a position and, you know, the dream of everyone, oh, it's to sit back and eat bonbons on a hammock in a, in a small, like, tropical island and have someone fan you, right? You see the Egyptian, you know, where they have, you know, people fanning them or going every, at your own whim, you know, someone catering to your every needs. That's like the spa experience, right? If you think about in the culture there, it was to do nothing with your hands. It's kind of, as I like, um, as I compare it, it's not the Western mentality. The Western mentality, um, it's called new money. And so there are people who are wealthy who do a lot of things with their hands, work on their own vehicles. Um, but um, if you think about society, there was a time where they didn't like to get their hands dirty. And so they'd have someone else do it. And that is what Paul's expressing, especially back in this Greek time. And he says, here, we labor working with our hands. That would be disgusting to anyone in a position or say, why do you do that? You know, you don't have to do it. American culture is a little different because Americans, I mean, honestly, in, in the U.S., we're kind of rebellious to every other civilization culture sometimes because you say we can't do it, we'll do it. Um, you know, it's just how, we, how the U.S. is. But here, it says we labor working with our own hands. And so understanding is that, that here, the testimony of others before others, we work with our hands, they're not afraid to get dirty. And sometimes if you think about in a, in a government, in a business, they have those who are on the top end. And usually they aren't doing, they aren't the ones who are mopping or washing or doing things because you have someone else to do that. But sometimes we respect someone who is willing to get their hands dirty. Maybe they've made it on their own, and they are still willing to do some menial work or something that would be what we call, oh, beneath us. Because it shows that they are down to earth. But there's some who have arrived at the point where they don't want to do anything. They think anything below, um, any work that they have to do with their hands is beneath them. And Paul is condemning them, saying, guess what? You know, don't have that. Uh, don't have that mentality. Your actions, working hard, being not afraid of working. And then it says, being reviled, we bless. That reviling is literally verbal attacks, criticism, insults. And uh, like I say, it's not fun, you know, when people insult you, uh, verbal insults, and mean it. And it's hard because within us, there's a, a nature just to crack, to respond back to them. Because you can only take it for so much. But it's hard to ignore the noise, but we must remember that it reflects a lack of self-control and weakness. Those individuals who insult you, especially in, for the sake of the gospel as a believer, as Christ, if you do something foolish and they insult you and say, oh man, what are you doing? I'm sorry, that's your own, your own fault. 
but I'm talking about spiritually. If they insult you for a Christian, if they say, why are you doing that? Why do you go to church on Sundays? Why do you choose to follow after Christ? Go ahead. Get involved. Lie. Steal. Everyone else is getting away with it. Why don't you? And you decide ethically not to participate in that? You know what? They're going to call you and insult you and say, you know, that's crazy. Why don't you do that? And it's important that we, our actions represent that because that's countercultural. And people won't understand that. But being reviled, it says we bless, literally to bless. You know, when people say, oh, I'll pray for you, or, you know, don't do it in their face, do it in a, in a humble way. But we must remember that it reflects, reflects a lack of self-control and weakness. People are going to yell and they insult you because they don't have their life together. It says, being persecuted, we endure. When we're facing persecutions as a result of our faith, faith we are to endure. It is not easy to go through persecutions. I mean, I don't know how well we would do if we lived in, say, a, um, a different country where uh, because of your faith, you know, you're confronted with life and death or maybe the underground church. Sometimes in areas of persecution, uh, it really strengthens your faith. I mean, we could talk about, we could use the C word, talk about COVID and how that really revealed different people's faith. But think about life and death, where in Russia, they've gone through periods of being confronted with what they believe. In China, in a lot of the Muslim countries, at the risk of death. And I'll be honest, it would affect a lot of people's Christianity because all of a sudden it's like, do I want to live or do I want to say that I follow after Christ? But persecution. And, and I'll be honest, we don't know what would happen until we got to that point. But the prayer would be that we are, are growing in our faith and that we could do that. But endurance, it is a long term, the endurance. Uh, being defamed, we entreat. You know, when people misrepresent us or say things that aren't true, oftentimes we want to clear our names and say, hey, this is what I said, that's not right. But it says we encourage, and this is, is so such irony because how do, we, how do we respond in this way when we face misrepresentation? People distort our words. We have to be careful how we respond, not to s- seek revenge or retaliation. And uh, when we say, um, what is true? The apostles talk about it and says, they were, Paul understood they were men condemned to death. That, that was what their end result would be. They understood that. But being, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. How can, how can they handle that? How can they survive through that? What allows, enables a person to have that constitution to be able to be strong in the face of such vile and atta- verbal attacks? And let me get to the bottom because that's not even the lowest point. Paul continues on and says, we have been made... As the filth of the world, literally scum. You know, it's not popular anymore, but they used to say, you scumbag. But the filth of the world, it, it would be like the scrapings off of a shoe. Maybe you step in mud or dog manure and you're scraping it off your shoe. Literally, that's what it is, the term used here. Gum, I guess we could use gum or dirt. But believers must remember that others will always view biblical Christians as weirdos as strange, as odd, as peculiar. 
And, you know, we're going to get treated like that. And I'm not saying that, oh, you know, you should enjoy it because it's not like, oh, we naturally enjoy it. But when you live your faith, there's going to be a time where it's going to get worse. It talks about in Timothy, you know, it's going to get worse and worse. And for the most part, our natural response is just to hide. Don't tell them we're a Christian. And then there's the other response, the rebellious part. says, well, I'm going to tell everyone I'm a Christian and be in their face. Well, that's not what he's saying either. What's important is just to continue to live your life based upon your personalities, but don't necessarily hide the fact, but don't, you don't have to promote the fact so that you are offensive to everyone and uh, causing, if you will, contention. But your spiritual testimony and how you respond in difficulties and persecution is going to be a witness to others. But don't try to live by their status. Don't try to be accepted by others because you won't be accepted by them. And that's the hard thing is that, as we talk about it, the Corinthians want the praise of the world. They want everyone to think how smart they are or how, you know, status, look at this. I have everything. I have knowledge. The academics, you know, oh, look at how much I know about the Bible, but they don't know Christ. And it's important for us to remember that we're not to seek that status, as we mentioned, but also our actions. Don't be going after, after the and so our actions are countercultural. And then believers' role models are countercultural. As we go through verse 14 through 21, it says, Imitate Paul. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Paul cared about these Corinthians because many of them he had led to Christ, and they were his sp spiritual children, if you will. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you know, there's others who are going to help and invest in them, yet, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Paul says, I'm going to send someone who I entrusted, who I led to Christ as well, and he will help you learn what the word of God says. That's why discipleship is such a valuable part, but also it's not just to get information. I was talking with some of the um, guys at Bible study that discipleship we often emphasize on knowing what the Word of God says. And I think that's a valuable part of discipleship. But it's also to spend time with other believers. Because as you mature, as you see people, there might be, there are men who I believe are, who are strong spiritually who might not know every doctrine, every truth. I think it's important to know those truths, especially in the city when people are trying to deceive you. But sometimes their spiritual walk in prayer and how they respond to trials and difficulties. I don't know, but um, my wife can tell you, I'm, pretty, I'm sometimes high-strung, probably like that cat who jumps, and it's just how I respond to different things. It's just part of my nature, and I have to re learn to relax. There's some people who can be faced with a, um, a trial or difficulty, and you know, you know what? It's in the Lord's hands. My first thought is, okay, how can we fix it? Or you know, sometimes we forget to pray. But when God... There are those, like I think about farmers, I think of people who've endured and gone through other difficulties, challenges, and their demeanor, they have a quiet demeanor. Uh, maybe they are um, ones who have been a farmer for their whole life. They've seen um, a long steadfastness of the faithfulness of God in their life. And so there's just different elements. And my point is that when we spend time around other believers, we see spiritual strengths and we, strengths that other people have that we don't have, but we're encouraged by that. When they go through difficult times that are affecting their health 
and they are faithful to God. That is a testimony that is much stronger and writes more words than simply the doctrine of, you know, understanding some of the other doctrines because we have the head knowledge, but we don't have the opportunity to be able to see it visibly lived out. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've gone through a difficult time. Some have cursed God. Some have said, well, I don't believe God anymore. Some have gone through difficult times, but then they've come back and said, you know what? God is in control. doesn't mean that we still go through emotional trauma, but it's taking those emotions and giving them over to God. That's why the book of Psalms is so powerful, because it's literally people crying out and whining to God. You know, we're good at whining. You know, oh, why did this happen? Oh, I can't believe this. Oh, the government did this. Or, oh, you know, they did that, and my neighbor did this. And, you know, we're good at whining. But you know what? God still hears it. And he says it's okay. But then those who, when we respond to that, if we keep on whining about the same things, that's not very spiritual. But we take that, and then we change and realize, okay, God, you're, you're probably trying to teach me something or to endure. And as we go through, we begin to see his faithfulness why these events occur. It helps us. It teaches us. And sometimes we don't even always understand why things occur in our lives. But guess what? There's other people watching. And these believers' role models are countercultural because the world says, oh, look after this person. That's successful. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's this believer. You know, they have it all together. Look at that. They have all these talents. Sometimes God chooses a young person to teach you about the faithfulness of God. Sometimes God teaches you this person. You know, God may use the simplest of people who are a believer, who are trusting God. And so here Paul says the role models. And, you know, the challenge is in today's culture, people would choose the megachurch pastor or the acclaimed speaker or author. But they only care about their numbers or maybe their influence. Uh, But God chooses people like your Sunday school teacher a parent, a farmer who has a powerful prayer life, a simple teacher who cares more about investing in you than impressing you. No, Paul was not the picture of an ideal leader or the spiritual influencer. He wasn't that tall. He was bald. He just, he talks about, he was, it's, even he puts about it in some of the uh, historians. It's kind of ugly. You know, he couldn't see very well. There were issues in there. Most people wouldn't have picked him. But guess what? He would not have gotten many likes on Facebook, Twitter followers, or even be considered influential on Instagram. But he was one who God used, who God chose to use, and because he was faithful, following after, he cared about people. He endured hardship and trial. He wasn't perfect, but he was faithful and sought to encourage and cared about, and people knew that he cared about. And he says later, guess what? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love or a spirit of gentleness? Guess what? That accountability. A good friend or someone who cares about you spiritually is going to keep you accountable. They're not going to agree with, oh yeah, you want to do that? Sin, go ahead, you know, because I'm worried about my friendship. Or they're worried about, you know, what they can get from you. A good friend is going to be truthful to you and say, guess what? That's not a good idea. What are you thinking? Even at the risk of losing you as a friend. Because they care about you as an individual. Society often makes promises that it cannot keep and often believes people can act without receiving consequences. There's going to be a time of accountability for believers, and we must be ready for that time. And it's ironic that unsaved people will deny God's existence in life until they're faced with a life and death situation. Then all of a sudden, oh, you know, I might believe in God. 
Well, let me just close with this, an important life lesson. Our lives will be in contrast to other people's priorities, to the world's priorities. But when we, it is in contrast to the world's priorities, if you are living according to the will of God, that is what is most important. Because to live according to the will of God, that means following after what the Bible says, obeying, praying to God, being submissive to his direction in our life, that's going to be in contrast, direct contrast to what the world's priorities and what the world says is, is success. But I truly believe that you will find more peace, more fulfillment, more understanding in that path than you will in what the world offers. Shall we pray?